Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend Stephen Fairchild to conclude our conversation on the Colors trilogy of Krzysztof Kislowski. We have talked already about blue and white, and now we are turning from the questions of freedom and equality, the modern virtues, to the question of fraternity, which is the theme of Rouge. Steve, thanks a lot for joining me. It's been quite a ride getting through this trilogy, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this story can even conclude what we have been talking about so far. So, first of all, please run us through the plot. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Titus. It's a pleasure, as always. All right, so we are now on Red, the story of fraternity, as you said, which is perhaps the most enigmatic film in the trilogy. And it's about an unlikely friendship that grows between two lonely Swiss citizens. But it begins with a missed telephone connection between Valentine, our heroine, uh, who is a model, a student, and apparently a ballet dancer, and her jealous boyfriend, who lives in England. The two can never connect for more than a few minutes over the phone throughout the film. In addition to their tenuous connection, there is another kind of frequent misconnection that we observe between Valentine and the neighbor across the street, the law student Auguste. We get throughout the story clues as to their suitability as a romantic match for one another. But in the beginning of the movie, Auguste has his own romantic interest, Karen, who runs a weather forecasting service with some fancy technological equipment that shows what weather patterns work and whatnot. One night after being on the runway at a modeling show, Valentine is in her car and she's distracted by some sort of interference on her car radio. And as a result of this distraction, she hits a dog in the street. She ends up seeking out the owner of the dog. She sees the address on the dog's tag and finds it to be the retired judge, Joseph, who seems not to want the dog back when Valentine tries to return the dog. So Valentine takes her to a vet and assumes ownership until the dog runs back home one day. Valentine follows the dog home, enters Joseph's house, and discovers that he's tapping his neighbor's phones. Coincidentally, perhaps, one of those neighbors is Karin, the love interest of Valentine's neighbor, Auguste. They get into a discussion, Joseph and Valentine, and Joseph predicts that Karin and Auguste are not right for one another. And the plot shows that, indeed, Karin will soon betray Auguste in an almost identical way to how the only woman Joseph ever loved betrayed him before his retirement. Upon this revelation of his eavesdropping, Valentine leaves Joseph, disgusted and indignant at his willingness to violate his neighbor's privacy. As a consequence of this indignation that Valentine shows him, Joseph soon turns himself in by writing letters to his neighbors and to the police. Valentine soon reads about his resulting legal troubles in the newspaper and visits him to assure him that she had nothing to do with it. Of course, he knows that since he turned himself in. Anyhow, they come to a reconciliation here, and he ends up encouraging her to go visit Michelle, her boyfriend, in England by ferry. He also tells her when they meet at this time uh, of a dream that he had, in which she wakes up at the age of 40 or 50, next to someone she loves, and happy. She plans the trip, and the ferry ends up sinking in a storm. 
among the handful of survivors are not only Valentine and Auguste, the neighbor across the street, but also the two couples from the other two films in the trilogy, Julie and Olivier from Bleu and Carole and Dominique from Blanc. So we have, after all, a kind of happy ending comprised of the happiness of the three different couples in the trilogy. Yeah, so the ending of the movie has these two shocks. We learn that all of these couples end up in the same place at the same time, in the same ordeal, and all survive. And the other one is the ordeal itself, the storm in which a ferry in the channel sinks. It's hard to even think about how they might go together, but it may become somewhat more obvious during the plot. But it's important to know where this ends because it is indeed a strikingly difficult movie to predict. Very easy to follow, very pleasant to watch, very hard to predict. Especially seeing the way it caps off the trilogy up until Kislovsky shows it, it's not at all clear that this should even happen, much less that it's guaranteed to happen. And that has to do with the way Red reverses the structure of the previous two movies. Blue starts with Julie losing her family and then she has to deal with that and she comes up with a plan that turns out to be insufficient but she's nevertheless the protagonist and designs at least the first plan that leads to the action of the plot. This is even more so in the case of White where Carol suffers a terrible setback at the beginning and he comes up with a plan to deal with it and enacts it in the movie. There's no accident at the beginning of Red, it comes up at the end. And so in what way could the accident be tied up causally as it was in the other cases? Well, normally we think about the cause coming before the effect in a chronological sense. That's what happens in the first two movies, but the cause could come before the effect in another sense, if it is a finality. And that would seem to be why the plot of Red is reversed from the previous two. The accident that reveals the whole problem comes at the end and nevertheless is causative of the whole story that led up to it. It's a fascinating way of thinking about it, even for a director like Islosi who likes to think about all the ways in which accidents or chance or good or bad luck could lead to fundamental insights. This connects to the other problem. How do we get to this finality if it is in some sense a cause, a purpose? Well, the protagonist, this lovely Valentine, played by Irene Jacob, is not responsible for what happens in the plot. She's uniquely responsible for her own actions, and they are uniquely proper, but she didn't design this. To the extent to which there is any design and it is not complete, that would belong to Joseph, the retired judge played by the great Jean-Louis Trintignant. So you have this strange split between who enacts the plot and who plots the plot that hadn't happened before and that forces us to ask ourselves what the hell is happening here. And as you already suggested, this is even stranger because Joseph is predicting or designing a plot just as much as he's remembering one, since the latter half of the movie would seem to be enacting his own fate some three decades previous. These structures are all piled up on top of one another, and clarifying how they all add up is the work of repeated viewings. <laughs> we should say yeah. that up front. Yeah, it is sort of a series of accidents through which the plot unfolds. I mentioned that she hits Joseph's dog because of interference on her radio. This is never spelled out explicitly, but it seems we're meant to conclude that this interference was caused by Joseph's technical apparatus in his home. 
Yeah, and so the question arises, does he have some sort of omniscience to know that this would happen, and so to draw Valentine to him, because it ends up seeming later that he's been waiting his whole life for a woman like Valentine to love, I guess. But it seems to be too late for him. Yeah, you're right. This guy is a mysterious character in a way we don't often see in movies because he's involved in a number of important events where there would seem to be no intention or at any rate, none is openly disclosed. And the way he makes his exit, as it were, from the plot is with his dream, which is presented as damn near oracular. So it's very important not to underestimate what is said in his case, because he's obviously an exceptional man that plays an exceptional role here. And yet, this would not even work at all without this woman. And so maybe it's easier to start by describing what it is that Valentin is dealing with, because she also comes late in the story, at the end of the plot really, to a realization that the whole world around her is getting ready for some transformation, and she doesn't seem happy about the thought. So this would seem to be the story of her education. Certainly she learns from him all sorts of ugly truths, Certainly we see things around her that she should notice but doesn't notice and we also see her deal with difficulties So she transforms she's unique in the trilogy because she's a lovable character She doesn't do nasty things perhaps even as important nasty things aren't done to her It's massively underrated requirement of lovability that makes her unique. She's also strangely young, a college student, and therefore she has her life in front of her. This would seem to be her coming into her maturity. As you said, this all starts with her jealous boyfriend. He shows up a couple of times in the plot, right? And he's nasty because he knows she's a precious thing and that he's losing this precious thing, but he won't not lose it either. All he had to do was to stay in Geneva where the story is set, but he wouldn't. He wanted to go to London for some job, I guess. That would seem to point to a problem of modern times. Like it or not, we are oriented by our desires now. We can move around chasing those desires a lot. And all of this adds up to confusion, which is why the plot is so confused. All of these people are acting out on desires that instead of clarifying anything up until the very end, only make them on the one hand confused and on the other hand blind to themselves. Whenever you're chasing after your desires, you forget about yourself. You're obsessed with the object of your desires. And so there's almost no self-knowledge to go by here. And there is therefore the possibility that whatever is acquired by a way of self-knowledge will be tragic. Mm -hmm. These people yeah, will blind and, and they'll get hurt. And you mentioned in, in each of our previous discussions, the emphasis that Kislowski places on technology. The same is true for this film. Like the previous two films, it begins with an image of technology. The very first thing we see is Michelle, Valentine's jealous boyfriend in England, dialing her number on the phone. We follow the telephone signal from the phone through the wire into the wall in his hotel room or apartment. And then we go inside the wire and it spirals down into the English Channel. And then we follow it, come out the other side and follow the wire into Valentine's apartment. 
So again, in the very beginning, we're introduced to the story through a very complicated and actually technically difficult to produce image of technology and how it's shaping our modern lives. And, and then in this case, what's emphasized is the extent to which this natural impulse of jealous possessiveness that men can experience is exacerbated by the conditions of modernity in which it's possible for us to be in romantic relationships and live not only across the channel, but on opposite sides of the globe, if we so wished, if circumstances led us there. Yeah, and that would seem to be a big deal. That circumstances lead people. Why? Because those circumstances reveal their desires and everybody's caught up chasing after those desires, even if they don't really want to. Michel is split between his life in London and his love for Valentine. And it all turns out for the best because the guy's a bother. He takes out his anger on her repeatedly and it seems like technology is only driving him crazy. <laughs> he can reach out to her through technology but cannot cancel the distance between them. If she's not there to pick up, that's that. Yeah, and if she's not there to pick up, if there's a busy signal, it prompts paranoia, right? causes him to wonder what's going on with her. Is, is she seeing another man? What's she doing? And she sort of, I think, inadvertently teases him in this way. I don't think it's intentional, but she tells him early on that, Michelle, I was lonely last night. And his mind, of course, becomes suspicious. And he says, what did you do? And she says, I slept with your coat all night. His suspicions are, I think, almost always unjustified, and perhaps a better knowledge of his beloved would disabuse him of the tendency towards suspiciousness, but that's not the case. So it seems that Michel is just like everybody else. He knows that this is a world where we're all fickle because we're all led by desire, and he thinks that that's probably true of his girlfriend as well. She wants to make a career as a model. He doesn't want her to do that because then many people will see her and desire her. Now, mm -hmm. he's mad. He destroys his one chance at love with this phenomenal young woman because he's like everybody else. But that's also what makes him so interesting from the point of view of the story because he does reveal the condition that everybody is dealing with. Everybody is now in a situation if somebody doesn't answer your texts, the technology will actually tell you that other person read those texts. It's not just that you sent them or that you got a confirmation that you sent them, that they were received, but also that they were read. Well, why isn't somebody answering me back? What kind of treachery is afoot? This continuously drives people crazy, tantalizes them with what they might have. It enforces a kind of regime of spontaneity. Whatever pops into your head will come through technology to wherever on the other side of the world. That lack of distance forces people not into the interiority of others as they would wish to violate that interiority, but out of their own interiority. It's not so much what you see on the screen, it's what you put on the screen that counts and that ruins people's lives. And so Michel would seem to be right about the character of our situation. Everybody is led by telecommunications, by communications at a distance by a desire to close that distance, which in a sense is a desire to be somewhere else. Everybody's restless. Mm -hmm. Nobody has what they want. Everybody's displaced. And that would seem to be the trouble that is leading the plot here. Michel's vulgarity ruins his chance at loving this beautiful woman because it continuously pushes her away. But in making her upset, it sends her where she needs to be. Valentine is so remarkable because everything bad in this world turns to good around her. 
Now, this is a special form of providence. It doesn't mean that everybody else is going to end up well. Her boyfriend is presumably not going to end well. All sorts of other characters are not. In this movie, unlike in the previous one at least, there's some dying happening. Um, <laughs> even a character we actually get to know, and that hadn't happened even in the first movie that starts with dying. But at least for her, the world is charmed, and that would seem to be because of her character. The very pettiness of her boyfriend reveals her own nobility. She's a beautiful woman who is not in love with her own beauty. What's strange about Valentine is that she reveals herself and yet is not seen. Like her boyfriend, other people who notice her don't notice what it is that she says or shows about herself. She tells her boyfriend that she missed him, that she is in a sense a lover. But that's not really of any importance to him, although it should be. And she is not particularly concerned with the effect her beauty has on others. That would seem to be a requirement because beauty is the one thing about private life that is instantly public always and everywhere. Now, in our modern age, because of commerce and technology, we transform beauty to the point where it's supposed to run the world. It's not just that, say, you're supposed to see beautiful things on your iPhone. The iPhone itself is supposed to be beautiful. This is not an accident or mere salesmanship or advertising. This is technology capturing a philosophical truth that beautiful is the only concrete universal. Every beautiful thing is the beautiful. We're so mystified by this strange fact, we don't know what to do with it, that we've remade the world in its image. And everybody ends up a slave to beauty. Valentin yeah, is not. At the same time, we see a prophecy of the flip side of that in the dynamic with Joseph. He's eavesdropping on his neighbors. And what this essentially allows him to do is see the private ugliness that is not displayed publicly. And we are today, I think, seeing a little bit of the consequences of of this technology with social media. We get glimpses into everything that was once private, which is now public. And it seems to be not necessarily conducive to fraternity, right? We are polarized today in part because we know too much about one another and because we're compelled by technology to overshare every little thing, every little opinion, every little passion that we have. It's a little bit different in in the movie insofar as this is not something people are knowingly doing. Joseph is eavesdropping on these people, so they they don't have this compulsion that moves us today to share everything. But the possibility that technology could reveal what's ugly is present and strongly commented upon in, in the film. Yes, you're right. And it's precisely because this is just the dawn of digital technology that makes everything so revealing. As you astutely pointed out, just think about that beginning of the movie where cables transmit electricity and electricity moves around the world at lightning speed. And in the first iteration, we see a transmission of a signal. But then we learn later in the movie that if you can send stuff to people, you can take stuff from them in the medium of electricity. You can eavesdrop. You don't need to be speaking to. You can be listening to actively also at a distance without being in any way detected. Michel screams into his telephone just like every angry person does with every screen and every social medium today, whereas Joseph eavesdrops, he listens unbeknownst to people as corporations do, as states do around the world, and of course all spying agencies. But this is just the dawn of the digital revolution, and therefore it shows you that on the one side, 
the beautiful is pushing away from the private into the public and on the other side that the just is pushing from the public into the private. In both cases, the barrier between public and private that is required for us to continue to be both who we are as individuals and who we are together as communities is being breached through technology. Transportations and telecommunications are liquidating any association. We see it on display here and it seems to be the context in which Valentin will live her life and she seems to be the only person who is not too affected by it. Not that she's any smarter or better able to deal with this situation. It seems that she has a different moral outlook. That she's primarily dedicated to the beautiful side of the truth because that's what's obvious and with Valentin everything is obvious. Whereas with Joseph, everything would seem to be secrets and all of them ugly. <laughs> as much as she is constituted by beauty, he would seem to be constituted by ugliness. And so there's a question there, like, who's right? What is the character of the truth about our affairs? Some of the stuff that the movie reveals, it reveals by ugliness and others by beauty. And so it would seem that maybe both are necessary and you couldn't reduce either way. But that would seem to be the temptation to say that the beautiful is reducible to bodies that you can see, whereas the concern of the just or of the truth is with the invisible, with things that you have to think, with mind. And so we again end up with technology, which is a rule of disembodied minds, and in this case, telecommunications technology. And on the other hand, people who are desperately trying to live their lives, trying to make sense of who they are, but who are in the new dispensation, mere bodies in motion. That's why the example of Valentin is so important and turns out to be so important to Joseph himself. She's the one person who seems to know who she is and to act on those opinions without respect to what's going on in the story. She does not turn around the story, the story turns around her. That would seem to point to how things turn to the good. She becomes a model for bubblegum and some kids put bubblegum in her door, a lock, and jam it. But the neighbor, of course, leaps at the chance to help her because she's such a lovely person. And that makes them closer together in a way. It's, it's a nice neighborly thing to do. But it also means that she can't pick up her phone before her boyfriend blows his stop. And that also turns to the good, although it's a bad thing in itself, since it will give her the distance she needs from him. What she'd said, that she slept with his jacket on, that's about the sense of touch, smell and the suggestion of intimacy. She has to admit that that distance is there, not just because he's across the sea, but for moral reasons. He's such an unpleasant man. And so this unpleasantness also turns to the good. The interference of the listening technology the judge uses distracts her in her car, and this leads her to hit the dog she then saves and to meet the man whose dog and whose interference brought her to him. It's not clear how he acts, if he acts at all, or it's all a coincidence, but in her case, you can see she acts on propriety. She wants to do the right thing. That is to say, shame matters to her in a way it doesn't seem to matter to anybody else, even though she has nothing to hide. It's a very strange thing to think about, but it makes sense. You can only really afford to act on the principles of shame if you don't really have things to hide. So this leads to the confrontation with this guy who is obsessively prying into everybody else's secrets and who does seem to have been looking for somebody like Valentin. And he reacts in a nasty way, presumably precisely because he's too aware of the distinction between public and private. People present themselves as nice people doing the right thing, but if you listen in on their secret conversations, all sorts of crazy things are heard in this story. And he confronts her with these things. He doesn't want his dog back. He doesn't give a damn about what she wants to do and forbids her to close his door. 
even that would be a restoration of the distinction between private and public that he refuses to concede. Nevertheless, she's intrigued by him to an extent and connected to him through this dog. And that's how she learns his ugly secret, which is everybody else's ugly secrets. They're available to him and he's really attracted to him. We don't confess our ugly secrets. He is willing to do it precisely because this girl is such a boy scout. He wants to know how is she going to react be indignant and lie about the truth that he has learned about the difficulty justice faces in a modern world where life is private. Justice is about public things. We hide so much stuff in our private lives. How can you ever really do justice? Is she going to lie about it and thus prove that her morality is a scam that she can afford even if others don't? Or confront it? And her reaction is to be indignant and disgusted. And that again shows that this really is her character a decent person. That's a moral statement, you know, what is the intellectual correlative of that? Well, she does have an awareness of the priority the good has over the beautiful, even in propriety. She learns ugly secrets from him that she's not willing to share because they might hurt people. She's willing to judge circumstances rather than act on principle. She's not obsessed with abstractions. Yeah, the closest she comes to perhaps acting on an abstract principle is when she begins to take a kind of revenge on one of Joseph's neighbors who he informs her is likely in control of Geneva's heroin trade. Earlier in the movie, she learned via newspaper that her adopted brother, there was a picture of him shooting up heroin. This very much disturbed her, and she was concerned her parents would see this newspaper and and learn of their adopted son's shameful experience being addicted to drugs. So this points to another characteristic of modern society, the strange tension between public and private represented by the press, and the extent to which things that are supposedly publicized or published for knowledge and the public benefit can in fact destroy private lives or can in fact reveal the shame of private people. It's a series of chance events, again, that reveals this. By accident, she runs into this picture in the papers of her brother. By accident, the judge infers from this and reveals to her this identity of the heroin dealers. She calls the guy and tells him that he deserves to die, which scares him because he's in a very dangerous business. But it's a personal matter to her because of her brother. Indeed, as you alluded, it's not really an abstract principle. Because she can leave things at a concrete situation with which she's familiar from a relationship or an experience, she doesn't need to get involved in deeper problems. It's not obvious at all that in her discussions with the judge, she would be able to elaborate any of the things that she believes in and defend them. But Mm -hmm. happily, she doesn't have the disease of intellectuals. She deals with her own life. But as you put it, there is a broad principle and a broad problem revealed by this series of accidents. We're supposed to have some kind of relationship between public and private, and it turned out to be the press and television and now the internet. And it turns out that it is not working well, but we have no idea how to deal with it because it shouldn't exist in the first place if we think about the separation between civil society and state. And on the other hand, we all know it's unstoppable because we're all part of it. Everybody is the TV, everybody is the newspaper on the internet all the time. Somehow the impossible is the inevitable with us.
that's a really funny thing to notice. Not in that particular situation, which is so morally charged. But even there, it's worth noticing that Valentin doesn't suffer so much and she worries more about the suffering of other people. And that would seem to mean that they are less able to deal with it than she is. In some cases, it's understandable because they're more directly involved. But in another way, it might be that she really is less vulnerable by nature. And that's why she can afford to see more of the truth and to behave more with propriety than other people could with safety. She doesn't reveal other people's secrets for that reason. And this makes her more complicated a character than she had been before. Now she has secrets to keep. Yeah, she is tempted to reveal the secrets to one of Joseph's victims, as it were. They overhear together a conversation. At first, she just thinks it's a man talking to his gay lover. She doesn't know anything specifically about his circumstances, only that Joseph is eavesdropping on him. She thinks that he has the right to maintain his privacy. And so she goes to talk to him, only to learn that he has a family. So when, when she learns more about his specific situation, that he has a wife and a daughter, who actually she sees is listening to the phone call herself at her home. She sees these things, she leaves off her plan and realizes that she would not be doing good to these people to reveal the secret. And so she leaves. Yeah. What technology serves to reveal in the case of this movie is how everybody is divided against himself. Michelle is the boyfriend of Valentin. He must have some redeeming qualities given her goodness. But technology also tempts him to become a, a nasty guy and he's quite eager to give in as a matter of pride. And so that reveals a division within him. So also with this guy, she unwittingly listens in on. On the one hand, he's a family man. On the other hand, he conducts this homosexual liaison. You can see in the family that everybody is, however, stuck with a problem. His wife is willfully ignorant and his daughter is willfully inquisitive. Everybody is divided against himself because our secrets are tied up with technology now. Like it or not, that's how we live and it will push our passions this way or that way and therefore it will turn the splits inside of us as to who we are one way or another. And so this is how Valentin learns that people are not just who they are. People are split against them and therefore it's not obvious whether truth-telling would help. Truth-telling implies a certain upbringing, certain virtues that will allow people to deal with the consequences of learning dangerous or harmful things. And from Joseph's point of view, the judge has already realized that you cannot act with justice. Since there is a split between public and private, you're not going to know enough to do justice. And so he has satisfied himself with preferring truth to illusions. He's going to learn the ugly truth even at the price of not being able to do anything about it. He used to do something about it as a judge, but he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Now he knows exactly what's going on, but he can't do anything about it. That's very funny in its own way and reproduces the split inside of him. It's just that it's not obvious why he doesn't do anything. He's obviously looking for some way to act which is why he tempts Valentin. You're such a goody two-shoes. Why don't you go do something about it? It turns out that privacy is in a crisis because of our democratic character. Commerce and technology push us in the direction of revelation and espionage. But on the other hand, our desires also push us in the direction of secrecy. And we don't know how to deal with this stuff. And she doesn't know how to deal with it either. Whatever she thinks about privacy is a matter of propriety. It's not exactly justice, but it's not simply 
a beautiful ceremony or a ritual. It's somewhere in between. It's what manners are or should be. And she realizes that this just cannot work in our modern society. But it doesn't change her yeah. mind about how she should act. Yeah, and I think this is perhaps clarified somewhat if we look to the event that happened in Joseph's life that led him to abandon his profession of judge to take up this private eavesdropping. As we alluded to earlier, this was something from his past that's repeated in the life of Auguste, the law student. Joseph retired. He informs us at the end, after he convicted a man with whom the only woman he ever loved had betrayed him before she died in an accident. So he convicted this man legally, even though the judgment wasn't apparently just, he decided that he was done with the law. The legal revenge he had on this lover of the only woman he loved didn't make him happy, and it disillusioned him with his profession, and I expect with whether it was really possible to dispense impartial justice when you're dealing with people who have private concerns. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not that the judge ever did anything wrong as a judge or behaved in an unprofessional way. It's that public revenge did not make him whole. Private life is just so much more important in our lives than public life. What's ruined Joseph these decades is the failure of his love. The political failure there is that the laws just cannot keep up with our desires. It was a problem inside his own heart that ruined his life, and it's not something that any institutional arrangement could deal with. He learned that the law actually is impotent. It's not that the law shouldn't deal with the things that the law can deal with, but the kinds of laws we have aren't really worth the name. And so he just gave it up. He can at least have the ugly truth now, which he must have long suspected, at least since being betrayed, is the truth that counts, because it might ruin your life. So from that point of view, the beautiful is a delusion and the law is only a species of the beautiful. The truth is ugly. It will undelude you, but then it's not at all clear that you can live with that. And so this is why he's interested in Valentine, who is the only character who seems to have her inside and her outside match. So she doesn't seem to be split against herself in the way everybody else is. How could that be since, just like everybody else, she lives a private life? That would seem to be the importance of the beautiful. It's not just private, it's also public in some sense, and therefore points to the question of piety. The behavior of Valentin points to the question of moderation. She doesn't give in to her passion in the way other people do, and she reserves time for judgment even in hot situations, in a way that almost reminds you of Jane Austen's stories rather than what you usually see in the movies. But her beauty points to the question of piety because it points to this possibility that she's an angel. She seems to not be fallen in the way the rest of us are, in the way everybody else in the story emphatically is. There are beautiful women in the story who are treacherous, because they can be. They're led by their desires. They don't intend to harm people. They just don't really give a damn. Why don't they give a damn? Because they give a damn about their desires. Why? For the same reason we all do. We hope, that is to say, to find something good somewhere, something that will make up for our mortality. And so we'll go with that, whatever propriety would tell us not to do. Nobody can say no to himself. Valentin is a different kind of person. Since she does say no to herself, she doesn't live by her impulses. She's strangely moral without being very moralistic. Now, and then she sounds moralistic, but she doesn't act as you would expect to harm people on principle. That would be the mark of moralism. This would seem to be why she's a fitting example for Joseph. 
she's what it would take to redeem his faith in mankind. Turns out also that she's what it would take to save this young man, August. He is a lawyer, he's trying to become a judge, he's studying for his exams, he is happily in love, at least so he thinks, with Karen, but he's not much good at predicting the future. That's another problem with the laws. She's not very good at predicting the future either. She's a weather forecaster. That's one form of technological prediction of the future. But part of the joke, of course, is that the weather is actually very fickle, just like she is. <laughs> There's only so much faith you should put in her personal weather forecasts. But this guy is divided in between his pursuit of a career in the law, which would suggest that he's going to be a dignified man. This is Geneva in 94, just like in Paris in the previous movie. The gentlemen of the court still wear robes. They conceal their private person behind the public appearance of sternness and self-possession. They are somber, not gaudy. They don't seem to live by the rule of flamboyant, overwhelming desire that describes the society. As we have said, behind the facades of Geneva, people are dying of heroin. How much do you have to hate your life to do that? How can this become an industry? Well, we all tell a beautiful public lie and a lot of people live a miserable private life behind that. This young August learns to his own near destruction that there is desire inside of him too. He is not at all immune to this incredible power and that it's far more important than whatever he might believe about respectability and the career. He's restless. One night instead of studying, he just goes bowling. It's one of the many moments when he fails to meet Valentin. He's restless, she's the answer to all of his problems and yet he can never see her although she's always there. His heart is clouding his own eyes just like technology does. I think that this also helps what you've been saying, Titus, about Valentin helps us understand perhaps the significance of her image in the giant ad on this street in Geneva. It's really, it's a huge bubblegum ad with her sad face on it. Seeing her in this ad is the only time August sees her before the end of the movie. And she's displayed for everyone to see as this beautiful, angelic woman who's also the most moderate and perhaps the most whole human being in the story. And I think what advertising tries to promise to people and there's also some truth, I think, in it as well, to the extent that, at least in the movie, this is what people would have to be like if they were to be less miserable. Yeah, and of course, there's something very funny about the ad. She's a very beautiful woman, but they put up this ad with her looking sad in the yeah. profile. Why would that be? Well, that is the truth about desire. Now, most advertising, of course, is about enthusiasm, satisfaction, exaltation, these extreme states but they conceal desire rather than reveal it. You know, whatever flavor you're gonna get out of that bubble gum or the pleasure of chewing, that makes you forget about whatever it is that got you to do it in the first place. Desire is a kind of sadness, that is to say a longing, an awareness of pain that makes us restless and sends us thinking about something else. It is the presence of something that doesn't really exist there. It's your desire for something, not the presence of that something there. Desire in that sense is the correlative in psychology to what in the law we call a right. You have a right to something doesn't mean you have that something, but you have a right to it and therefore it sends your mind thinking about something that's not there and therefore it is a cause of action. Yeah, and I think that's interesting that there's actually no bubblegum in the ad. 
It's just her sad face with the name of the bubblegum in the corner and the slogan, Fraîcheur de vivre, which could be translated as breath of life, freshness of of living. Yes, that is literally true because that's what Valentine is. She's a creature of grace. It's, of course, not true in any other sense, but at least in this specific case. And that turns out to be very important because it does disclose what everybody is actually looking for. In a way, the problem is that even a place like Geneva is a place where nobody really knows that all that they're really looking for is this Valentine. That's a really strange situation to be in. You would think that we would at least know what we're obsessing about since we are so much driven by obsessions. But it would seem that it's precisely because we are driven by obsessions that we do not even know what it is that drives us and what towards it should drive us. So I've gone at length about this to come to this formulation to give it a bit of plausibility. It would seem that Valentine has no problems of her own. That's what makes her angelic. Her problem, other people are nasty, like Joseph, like Michelle, and it turns out Auguste as well. He gives in to his terrible passion for this girl, Karin, who betrays him, and instead of standing on his manly legal dignity, he just humiliates himself in increasingly public ways because he can't believe that the world we live in is such a horrid place where beautiful women could prove false. You know, in love, everybody's all about the unity of the beautiful, the good, and the true. (laughs) When that doesn't cash out, you see all sorts of interesting things, but they tend to tragedy or melodrama. And so it would seem that, like, the old Joseph needs Valentine to justify his faith in mankind. He was looking for the beautiful. It's just that for decades he was sidetracked by the ugly because he couldn't find anything else. So also the young Auguste will need her. We don't know what their love affair is going to be like because it would happen after the end of the movie. But I think it's important to speculate about it because it doesn't really seem like she needs anything. Except that she needs a man. But you can tell from Auguste and Joseph what it is that they need. Valentine is not going to be just a wife. She's also going to be a kind of saint. She's not merely supposed to be a good companion. She's also supposed to justify mankind. Now, you might think that this is a tall order for a woman, but I suggest what makes decent men decent is that they behave in this way because they believe this specific thing. Highly underrated, and perhaps Valentine will therefore be underrated as a protagonist. The one example where what it is that you're dreaming about is actually what it is that you should have in your life. Mostly, whatever it is that you're dreaming about is not something you should be chasing, or at least not enthusiastically enough to catch it, because it's going to be a catastrophe. We're plagued with this problem that what we love, we might destroy, or it might destroy us. That would seem to be what makes being who we are tragic. But it wouldn't be the case in her case. Her husband would worship her because she's beautiful and true and good, and she'd have a husband to protect her from the ugliness of the world. Valentina is learning that this is a pretty unpleasant world and all sorts of nasty things are happening. And what is she going to do for her brother who is a drug addict? Now, this may offend egalitarian sensibilities, but a man could have acted in the circumstances. For certain reasons, the story shies away from that, doesn't show you what it is that Valentine needs. But you see her suffering over her brother and her willingness to call a a drug lord and tell him that he deserves to die. That's what it is that she can't do for herself. And it is a judgment on society by Kislovsky as the problem with capitalism. For us to have anything like the feminist democracy we supposedly want, we would need a system of justice that destroys these kinds of predators. 
but in fact we have a system of justice that enables them or at least whistles and so that's going to be a very big problem but at least at the level of private life you know now the solution it would have to be some combination of the wisdom of the old joseph and the strength of the young august they're both idealistic but one is still in the enthusiastic phase and the other one is in the depressive phase of idealism but a combination of the two is what it is that she needs this would seem to be why her meeting with august has to have the character of a miracle he has a vision of her and then they are safe from this terrifying shipwreck something would have to prove their meeting was foreordained which in fact it is and it turns out that you have these two alternative paths to get to the same conclusion one of which reasons from psychology and the other one from piety it's not even clear how they could really be separated if you see how much august suffers because of his beliefs and how fit valentine is to be the answer to his prayers in this discreet way it's just a bunch of people doing this funny and sometimes interesting things in geneva this very important question is developed about whether it is possible at all for people to have happiness and it seems like it has two oddly similar requirements that meet in only in valentine moderation and piety in the case of august you see what the absence of moderation does he humiliates himself publicly and drives himself crazy chasing after this woman who isn't really worth anything that would seem to be not merely immoderate but in a certain sense impious the problem with august and joseph is that they believed these women were angels who are not there's a question as to whether they will be able to recognize a woman like valentine is an angel miraculously fitting and good perhaps the same thing could be said about the European quest for unity as well and that might explain the significance of the fact that this takes place in Switzerland i think one of two if you count norway major european states not to be a part of the european union this quest for the perfect woman perfect happiness is impossible perhaps in the same way that the happiness that seems to be promised by european unity is impossible yeah what you can outline in the case of experience and psychology you cannot even begin to describe with any adequacy in terms of politics you'd have to ask yourself in what kind of world would it be possible for valentine to be recognized as the angel she is the answer to that is probably going to be a theocracy it's certainly not going to be a capitalist democracy i mean we could uh, be happy that at least it's not going to be our ancient enemy the communist tyrant and that's fine that's a terrible idea but we live in a world where we apparently are not capable of dealing with this at all that's the other reason why valentine is so interesting as a protagonist it would seem that only in her case is this fully obvious that there is no world in which she can fit she will not act with impropriety or give way to crazy desires nor on the other hand will she commit any sins against human dignity so to speak there doesn't seem to be any kind of providence for europe there is providence for the three couples that are presented in the three stories about the problems europe will be facing they can be saved but at the end they're on a ferry and these 1300 other europeans just get wiped out Yeah. It's certainly a very shocking scene for that reason. Kislovsky used footage of a real ferry sinking in 87 it was in the channel and indeed with great loss of life. The ship of state is not as safe as we would like it to be because nature has an uncontrollable aspect. Not even with our new scientific powers can we control the oceans. 
that reminds us how fragile and prone to suffering being human is. And this only happens at the end, because without a character like Valentine, it's not obvious that we would be able to deal with this well. These couples have suffered sufferings that have prepared them for it, and one couple is actually forged in this suffering, which apparently wouldn't work otherwise. It's a fascinating idea. But for people who aren't prepared for that, to think about the plot here, they're going to be destroyed, just like people are constantly destroyed by desires they cannot understand, control, or bring to a good ending. But that also seems to suggest whatever it is that we could learn about how to think about our problems and how to deal with them doesn't generalize anymore. That would seem to be why Kislovsky goes to such lengths to use symbols to connect his political problem with his psychological problem. It's the concert for the reunification of Europe in the first movie. It is a lawsuit in a French court and another one in a Polish court where mutual revenges can be taken by different nations. And as you put it, in this case, it's Geneva, the home of the Geneva Conventions. The UN, it's the famous neutral place that should be the end of history before the European Union gets to the end of history since the Swiss have not had a war in centuries. Yet it turns out that it's not paradise because the same people that are everywhere else are also there. And the European Union cannot deal with this because it does not have a, either an adequate understanding of who these people are or of what makes people work or not work, be happy or unhappy. That's why Joseph is so important to the plot, although he's the only old guy. His experience is absolutely necessary. You have to peel back the reputation or the public opinion to look at the ugly truth. Of course, that's dangerous because you might end up believing in the ugly truth. In a way, you might want it to be the whole of the truth to take your revenge against a public opinion that lies or is ineffective. Every idealist is forever threatened to become a cynic. You cannot start getting sentimental about stuff without being tempted continuously to turn to cruelty to satisfy that sentimentality. But for his own part, Joseph does seem to retain a capacity for action and for self-control, a sense of his dignity, and therefore of how he should act in public and in private. As you put it, Valentina rushes to him when she hears about his troubles, because it doesn't occur to her that he might have done it to himself. She's not cruel, and in a way she lacks the intelligence that cruelty or malice would offer. But also, as you put it, she says, well, you know, I had nothing to do with this. Of course, she had everything to do with this. He would not have done it, but for her. He's literally obeying her commands for one, but you know, you'd never expect that a nasty guy do that. Well, what if he's an idealist? But also, because of her, he believes that this might lead to a good thing. She is the private guarantee he needs in order to act publicly in the way that he ought to act. She's the only thing that gets him out of the house. He's a recluse at this point, a shut-in. He even wants to get rid of his dog, presumably because the dog is loving, enthusiastic, and <laughs> he needs somebody to obey in whom he can believe. His willingness, even eagerness to serve once he has tested her, turns out to give him this strange power. He gives her this oracle that is dreamt of her as a woman of 40 or 50, that she will be happy, married with somebody she loves. She will wake up and turn to that person. He doesn't know who it is. This is not something that you could say. But he believes it to be so, and she believes him. Again, this is not saying that Europe is going to be hunky-dory, but that she will. 
So there is some providential guarantee for somebody who is both moderate and pious. In this case, I don't mean piety in the sense of respecting the commands of a faith because we no longer have a public faith. But since Valentin is recognizably angelic, it would seem that it is still a version of Christian piety by which she acts. So that would seem to be the standpoint from which Kislovsky looks at all the characters in this story, since in each case, except Valentin, there's something wrong with them, and some of them are really unpleasant, at least for parts of their stories. But if you understand them as in search of a kind of completion that the plot but not themselves can reveal, that they can find in somebody else, if you think of each character of the six first as a whole as himself and then as a part of a greater whole with the partner revealed at the end of the trilogy, then it makes sense how you could have both drama and morality. This is what people should be aiming at instead of the rather more militant abstract principles of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. There is a shocking absence of fraternity in Geneva as a political community. And fraternity doesn't seem to give other models except behaving well with propriety to other people to try to help them and being helped in return, which seems always to be subject to chance and circumstance. Yeah. And it goes back to the lyrics to the Concert for the Unification of Europe that we mentioned in the first podcast from, from Corinthians, the encomium of Agape. Yeah, and so it would seem that this is simply inescapable, that without realizing it, what people are wishing for when they are wishing for the European Union is actually the guarantee that the Apostle says will be found in God. This is unique to Paul. You don't go around finding people promising that love will be rewarded, that the experience of the lover, his suffering, will come to a good end if that suffering is understood again as virtues that love is patient, that love is kind, that love bears all, that love is not proud. That is to say, if you believe in providence, the correlative of that providence is the end of history or the European Union politically. Kislowski doesn't seem to believe that that's going to pan out, but he's trying to show why people believe it in the first place. It comes from their strangely Christian eroticism. And so he seems to detail the ways in which people look for revenge when their desires are not satisfied, how people look for perfection when these desires come up in the first place, and what it is that people could learn from disappointment that might lead them to a reasonable understanding of love. Yeah, and I, and I would just add a quick observation that supports that. We hear in the soundtrack throughout this film a bolero, which is a, a kind of well, Ravel's Bolero is a ballet, and um, it's notable for its erotic beat, as well as its allusions to the repetitiveness of machines. I think Ravel tried to incorporate sounds from a factory floor into this music, and we hear this dance between eros and technology in the very soundtrack of the film throughout. And I think that again goes to what you were saying, Titus, about the Christian hopes Kozlowski is diagnosing in this film. You're right, that's a very good point. There is you know, love in the age of the machine, and it's become uncommonly popular precisely because of its teasing, erotic character, and therefore the way it drives desire on and therefore reveals what it is that people are so obsessively looking for. And it's worked out in the score again and again in discrete ways that show you that this is what we're looking for in stories too. We want these things to come to a certain conclusion. And that's 
only possible to an extent. The conclusion of the movie is a happy end more in the sense in which the end of Noah's story, the flood is a happy end than what mm. we are expecting yeah. at the movies. It's a reminder of how fragile being human is and how prone to suffering. And that seems to be because without that awareness, the other desires don't make sense either. You couldn't explain why somebody would self-destruct on the altar of love like Joseph did and Auguste is prone to do now and in his own petty way even Michel who is also somebody who tries to violate other people's privacy in the name of the possessive love that drives him. If you don't understand what the suffering of mortality is, it's not possible to understand why people would behave this way in the first place. Where the restlessness comes from? What is this heightened desire? Why can't people just calm down, do their technological jobs and enjoy their technological comforts? Why isn't that enough? Why do people do dangerous or destructive things? Why do people hate themselves? You'd have to recur to mortality, to the way in which it is revealed through chance events. Then you would need a guy like Kislovsky to add these things up. As I suggested, these three male characters, Michel, Joseph, and Auguste, are actually the same person viewed in three different ways, at three different levels, and they correspond also in the negative to three virtues. But it's presented in a very complicated way for dramatic reasons, and also because you can only have so many perfect characters in a story and retain any drama. It'd be implausible and unpleasant to keep having terrible things happen to good people. It's a very interesting thing that Kislovsky came up with here since it would be hard to say what kind of drama would fit Valentine since she's such a nice girl. Nobody could wish her. How could we enjoy seeing her suffer? How could we say that she deserves it? We have looked again and again at episodes and characters, at symbols, at parts of the plot, at dialogue and imagery, precisely because repeated viewings of the movies and becoming familiar with Kislovsky's art reveals how complicated, how sophisticated the work is. And that suggests that there's a difference between what brings us to these movies, how fascinatingly beautiful they are, and on the other hand, what they have to teach, which is so difficult to get at. Whether we like it or not, our conversations will reproduce the character of this difficulty, the tentative of grasping at things and trying to add them up. Just like the experience of watching the movie is something that you cannot substitute for. Yeah. He made cinema because if you don't have that experience, you're not going to care about anything else. That relationship between the beautiful and the good is there. But so also with our conversations and our attempts to understand this. The difficulty of getting to know things is also something inescapable. It's just that it's pleasant in a different way than the movie, eh? and unpleasant in a different way. So laborious. Yeah. But we have brought our first Kislovsky project at least to a good end. Perhaps we will have the opportunity later to talk about Decalogue and to show what it means for a movie maker to set himself a systematic task that is mm -hmm. more in the open. And so I thank you, Steve. The opportunity, the conversation, your essay, this has been wonderful. A spur and a guide at the same time. And if anything has led me to prolixity, but you have no one to blame <laughs> with yourself for that. Well, I thank you, Titus. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege and um, an enlightening experience, as always. And yeah, I look forward to the possibility of maybe talking about the Decalogue. Thanks a lot, and let's do something else. Sounds good. Bye.